Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Today, I want to talk about gratitude. Not just gratitude, actually, but the science of gratitude. What I like to call gratitudeology. Gratitudeology. All together now, gratitudeology. But let me start with a story, a sort of case study in learning gratitude. In late 1987, the AIDS epidemic was raging out of control in America. My partner, now husband, Robert Holly, and I were living in Los Angeles. We had left New York the year before, partly because so many of our close friends and colleagues were falling to the plague. Like Peter Shifter, a wild and crazily gifted stage director, his nutty laugh and wit always saved us from taking ourselves too seriously. Or Robert Carvin, his violent canvases contrasted with his gentle manner. And Barry Lane, an editor and dance writer devoted to helping struggling young gay people. And, and, and. The list continued to grow. We felt like we were gradually being encircled, strangled even. So we decamped to Los Angeles, somewhat desperately, thinking a change of scene might help. But as one learns in 12-step programs, the geographic cure never works. Changing the scenery doesn't change the inner reality. And AIDS was no less epidemic or frightening in the city of angels, despite the palm trees and beaches. Celebrities, Rock Hudson was among the first, were now being counted among the fallen in what was beginning to feel more and more like a war. Just as in combat, it made no sense that one person would fall and the comrade standing next to him would survive. In 1987, the process of testing for the presence of the HIV virus was still in its early stages. There were questions about the accuracy of the test and concern about protecting the identity of those who were tested. AIDS hysteria was in full bloom. Those most likely to be infected were also most afraid to be tested. They feared losing their jobs, family, homes, and reputations. But Bob and I felt that we should be tested. Some of our friends had gone through the procedure, and we saw the relief that the news of their status brought to their lives. And there were now some therapies that could treat the disease. We both knew it was entirely possible, even probable, given our less than entirely traditional lifestyle, that we could test positive. So one morning we went to an anonymous clinic somewhere in Hollywood and had our blood taken. We were given numbers and assured that no one would have access to the results of the test except us. I remember the silent atmosphere of overwhelming fear in the waiting room. Afterwards, we were told to call back on Friday for the results. This was Wednesday. We spent the next 48 hours in a weird spiritual limbo. We talked about what if one of us were to be positive, the other negative, 
and all the other possible combinations. I walked on the beach in Santa Monica and thought about all the things I still wanted to do with my life. On Friday, we called the clinic. Bob called first. I could see the anxiety drain from his face and body as he received the news. Negative. Then I called. I could hear some shuffling of papers. Then a voice said, your results aren't ready yet. Please call back Monday. Not being the calmest of people even under normal circumstances, I could feel the blood drain from my face. My heart began to race. Of course, I assumed this meant that I was positive. Why wouldn't they have my results at the same time if I were negative? During the weekend, I was in a state of barely controlled hysteria. I woke in the middle of the night. We had long conversations about what we would do if. On Monday, I called the clinic again. After what seemed like an awfully long pause, the voice said, your results are negative. At that moment, I felt the purest, sharpest, most exhilarating sense of gratitude I have ever experienced. Gratitude for life. Gratitude for being spared for whatever mysterious purpose. Gratitude for the freedom to look ahead without fear of falling ill. I promised myself I would never complain about anything again. That moment led me later to fantasize how one of my favorite writers, Fyodor Dostoevsky, must have felt when he was marched out to be shot by a firing squad. He had been charged with dangerous anti-government activities by Tsar Nicholas I and sentenced to death. At the last possible moment, just before the soldiers were lining up to shoot, a horseman galloped up with a clemency from the Tsar. Instead of being shot, Dostoevsky was sentenced to nine years of exile in Siberia. An unplanned sabbatical in the Siberian steppe may not sound like the most pleasant prospect, but as a result, Dostoevsky underwent a profound spiritual transformation. In his gratitude to God for being spared, he lost the arrogance and pride that had estranged him from his fellow man. In the novels he wrote after returning from exile, Crime and Punishment, the brothers Karamazov. He wrote about profound matters of suffering, spiritual growth, redemption, and forgiveness. In a real sense, being sent to exile in Siberia was the best thing that could have happened to Dostoevsky. It helped him to value every moment of life and to give him a new sense of compassion, empathy, and gratitude. As for me, as time went on after my experience with the AIDS test, I forgot my promise never to complain about anything again. Soon I began again to take life and living for granted. I complained about my job, my income, my friends, my family. Even worse, I envied others whom I perceived as more successful or more fortunate. I forgot to be grateful. I forgot to remember the words of Buddha. Let us rise up and be thankful, for if we didn't learn a lot today, at least we learned a little. And if we didn't learn a little, at least we didn't get sick. And if we got sick, at least we didn't die. So let us all be thankful. For years, I struggled to practice gratitude with mixed success. 
A sense of entitlement prevented me from appreciating the many gifts I possessed. Good health, productive, creative work, a loving relationship, friends, economic security. But rather than being thankful for the many things I did have, too often I focused on those I didn't have. I was prone to what psychologist and gratitudeologist Robert A. Emmons calls comparison thinking. In his insightful book, Thanks, How the New Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier, Emmons describes how comparison thinking leads us to ignore our own blessings and compare ourselves to others. He writes, when we look around and we see students with harder bodies, co-workers with larger retirement portfolios, relatives whose children are more grateful, neighbors whose SUVs are larger, we feel resentment and envy, not gratitude. In American society, comparison thinking is encouraged and deeply reinforced by the dominant culture of consumerism. Each day we are bombarded with advertising messages in print, on radio, on television, on the internet, that are designed to make us feel inadequate. If we don't buy the right car, or the right lawnmower, or the right television, or send our children to the right colleges, these ads tell us, our neighbors and friends who have these possessions will look down upon us as inferior beings. Consumerism fuels ingratitude, writes Emmons. For these reasons, as Americans, it can be very difficult to feel grateful for what we do have. Competition is an integral part of the capitalist system, but it can lead to a pervasive sense of insecurity, worthlessness, and ingratitude. To live happily as a grateful person, it's necessary to ignore these messages, or at least to understand them as a form of powerful and destructive economic propaganda. Listen to the Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus. He is a wise man who does not grieve for the things which he has not, but rejoices for those which he has. It's no accident that envy has always been considered one of the most powerful of human flaws, one of the seven deadly sins. Literature, music, opera, and film are full of stories of envy. Remember Peter Schaeffer's play and later film Amadeus, in which the exceedingly advantaged court composer Antonio Salieri conspires against Mozart because he is consumed by envy of his superior talent. This story reminds us that even those who are wealthy, successful, handsome, and talented can still feel ungrateful and victimized. Because gratitude has nothing to do with the material or other circumstances of one's life. It is an attitude and a way of living that can be learned and maintained. Gratitude is an attitude. Often we find that those who have the least are the most grateful. This is the secret of gratitudeology. Closely related to ingratitude and envy is the concept of schadenfreude. This German word meaning pity joy has become trendy in the last few decades. Schadenfreude is the pleasure derived from witnessing the misfortunes of others. 
The hit Broadway musical Avenue Q has a song entitled Schadenfreude. One of the lyrics goes like this. Do you ever clap when a waitress falls and drops a tray of glasses? Schadenfreude is the opposite of gratitude because gratitude emerges from internal goodness and never includes the desire to wish other people ill. Gratitude is an attitude. For me, one of the most helpful steps on the road to a more grateful and peaceful existence has been the realization that ingratitude emerges from and perpetuates feelings of victimhood. When we think of ourselves as victims of circumstances, we cannot be grateful. Instead, we wind up feeling resentment and envy. Grateful people regard even the most challenging life events as potential blessings. They transform adversity into opportunity. Recently, I saw an interview with journalist, editor, and writer Ariana Huffington on a news show. The interviewer asked this prolific author and entrepreneur to explain the secret of her success. Huffington said she believed her success came from learning a fundamental truth, that not getting what we want is often the best thing that can happen to us. She gave as an example the refusal of a man she loved as a young woman to marry her. This rejection led her to leave England and to come to the United States. Here she found new personal and career possibilities that she had not previously considered or even imagined. Gratitude is an attitude. For me, learning to live a more grateful life has been closely connected to finding and creating a sense of community. It was at Arlington Street Church and in the wider UU Fellowship that I discovered a new sense of belonging that has led me towards a more fulfilling life of gratitude. When we are grateful, we acknowledge that we are thankful to a higher power for our blessings, that we didn't do it all by ourselves, and that so many things are beyond our control. I realized this again this summer while leading a group of students from Northeastern University on a study tour of Central Europe. In the Czech Republic near Prague, we went to Terezin, the site of a former concentration camp, now a museum. Here, thousands of Czech Jews, Roma, homosexuals, and resistance fighters were imprisoned by the occupying Nazi forces under horrifying conditions during World War II. The guide brought us into a windowless bare cell the size of an American bathroom. Sixty people were crammed together here, barely surviving on starvation rations for days on end. Those who didn't die were sent on to the death camps at Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Standing there, I felt not only grief, but a sharp sense of overwhelming gratitude for life. The same feeling I had in Los Angeles years ago. The struggle is never to forget that life itself is the greatest gift of all. Amen.